Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Jessica. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast this morning. You and I have uh, spent a few minutes familiarizing ourselves with each other before we hit the record button, and uh, I'm on my second cup of coffee. I suspect you might be uh, having yours, too. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Uh, we always invite our guests to come with a big idea or bold opinion. But before we ask you to unravel that for us, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much, Jason. It is such a pleasure to be here today with you. My name is Jessica Statt, and I was born and raised in Rochester, New York. I uh, have been a fundraiser for over 22 years. I started as a teenager, actually, and yeah, yeah, um, kind of fell into the field, really. And uh, I have lived in Rochester my whole life, still live here, and now am the chief of philanthropic engagement for a company called Youth Advocate Programs, otherwise known as YAP. And so I came to YAP about a year and a half ago to build a private fundraising department. So it's been super great and uh, just a really amazing opportunity. And I love fundraising. So So I talk about this a lot and I talk about this in my forthcoming book um, because you and I have the same timeline. So you started fundraising about the same time. It sounds like you're a little younger because I wasn't quite in high school. Um, But if you were raising money, if you started raising money about 22 years ago, then you started raising money around the time of September 11th. And, um, and so if you think about it, we've got September 11th, we've got the recession, uh, that followed, you know, eight to 10 years later, and then you've got COVID-19. And I think those are two, tell me if I'm wrong, do, do those sort of seem to be two extraordinary marker, three, three extraordinary markers on our fun, are in our fundraising careers. Those of us who have been in it for about 20, 20 years, like you said, what do you think about that? Wow. Yeah. Such a great point. So I think as fundraisers in 
this field, you have to really pay attention to what's going on in the world. And it, yeah. when big events like that happen, to me, it's an opportunity to pause and reflect on how I've been doing my work and kind of see how I can change it. Because, yeah. you know, when the whole world stops like that, if you don't stop and pay attention to what's happening around you, you're not going to maintain your relevancy. So, you know, I want to be like nimble. I want to be that fundraiser who can roll my sleeves up and be nitty gritty and do what's needed to be done. And I've been, I've been an office of one for a year. Um, So it's, it's been very real to me, but, you know, starting my fundraising career, you're right, right around September 11th was a huge, huge challenge. Um, the economy was all crazy. I mean, and I was really just starting, so I didn't know a whole lot. Um, so I started working in the arts, actually. I started as a development assistant at Glimmer Glass Opera in Cooperstown, New York. And Uh the only reason I was given that opportunity was because I was actually an opera singer and I was going to school for music. And I thought, I want to be a musician and I'm going to be this famous opera singer. But I just couldn't let go of that want to understand everything about the agency. And that hunger on top of just really being fascinated by people is really what keeps me going. So when we're talking about events like like 9-11 and we're talking about COVID, we're just people doing work with other people. And so if if we don't pay attention to how people are feeling and what's going on in the world around us, we're not going to be successful fundraisers. So, um, you know, I... I I, I think I think you're the first. I'm sitting here thinking. So we've broadcast 250 plus episodes. I think you're the first upstate New York fundraiser that I've had on the show. You wow. said Cooperstown, New York. So you, that that's up. I'm guessing that's upstate New York as well. Um, yeah, yeah. And you're from Rochester. So is is there is there before we dive into your subject? Tell me if there's any. Is there anything different to raising money everywhere else in the state of New York? Other, you know, compared to raising money in New York City. Or is it you know, pretty much all the same? It, no, I mean it, it's all different. I okay, think if okay. I, I think it's different everywhere, you know. So like yeah. if I'm comparing upstate New York to New York City, I've done fundraising yeah. in both. Okay. So it's it's more individuals in big metropolitan areas like that. I feel like it's like okay. really the wealth lies in those yeah, top yeah, of the totally. pyramid people. Yeah. Um, but I find in like because now I manage national fundraising, so we do fundraising all over the globe. I'm learning about all these different areas across the U.S. and and what is uh, where the fundraising is. And in more rural areas, it's mostly community foundations. So that's what I'm seeing. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah we, we're in central Pennsylvania. So we're, um, and we have these two bo- big, you know, bookend sort of cities, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And I would probably say that it's, that's, it's a lot of individual wealth there's a lot of foundations that are tied to individual wealth, old money. And then you're right. Our community foundation, like here in, in my little community, York, Pennsylvania, um, even, even though there's a lot of individual wealth, all that sort of filters through the community foundation in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? So all those, all those rich white folks that, you know, that we're constantly sort of, sort of stirring ourselves up with, and with the angst related to that, um, it's sort of concentrated in this, institution known as the local community foundation, which I guess could be a whole nother, um, could probably be a conversation in and of itself. Jessica, (laughs) when we invite people like yourself to come on the podcast, we ask you, not me, to come on with your big idea or bold opinion. I've got plenty of them and usually about 20 minutes in or so I get to jump up on my soapbox. Uh, But uh, how about you unravel yours for us today? And uh, I can assure you that, uh, there's there's probably a lot of fundraisers out there that share your opinion, and there might be some that don't, but let's hear it. Yeah, I'd love to. So I believe that being a fundraiser and being the best fundraiser means being who you are and being truly authentic to who you are. But that's kind of scary, right? Because oftentimes as fundraisers, we're kind of like putting on a show or performing yeah. You know, and so I really believe that you have to be authentic to who you are. I tried for a very long time to fit into a box of what I thought a fundraiser should be. And I never I I I fell every time I didn't succeed. I I didn't understand, you know, like 
I'm just being myself here, you know, like, and that doesn't work for every agency either, you know, like it really depends. And so I feel like it's about being yourself, fundraising really from the heart and really like connecting and finding those common threads. You know, that's, that's what we're looking for here. You know, like I was listening to something, uh, about relationship building and, and being a fundraiser is about being likable. So oftentimes I was finding myself like, am I not likable? Do people not like me? But really what it came down to was just finding the right match and the right style of fundraising. And so, you know, now I'm overseeing all of our private fundraising, I oversee everything we do with individuals and corporations and foundations. And so it's a beast, but that also comes with the ability to find the right funders which I think is really important too, and yeah. bringing the right funders in the right way. You know, oftentimes I get challenged by the culture of an agency that maybe isn't used to fundraising. I used to consult. I've I've worked at hospitals. I, I worked at the local university here. And I found that the people who are not versed in fundraising were often challenging. Like, why are we doing this work? Like, why are we putting ourselves out there like that? And I really think if we don't put ourselves out there, we are never going to make the change that's necessary. And it comes down to people connecting with other people to make that change happen. So I really believe in just bringing myself, you know, if it's a bad day, hey, it's a bad day. Everybody has them. But- some of this, I, 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 I don't know if it's my privilege or if it's because I'm a white guy, but is some I don't think I, I have heard a number of people, sometimes on the record and sometimes off the record, tell me on the podcast here that they struggle with being able to, because I think this is what you're saying, they struggle with being able to show up as their real selves, if I can sort of put that, if I can sort of frame it. But it's not typically white males that typically say that. For example, I think the last person that told me that was a woman of color. Yeah. And we, we all know that the fundraising profession consists of a large number of women, for example. A lot of white women are doing this work. And I remember back when we first launched this podcast, I had a guest on the – Sam LaProd was my guest on the podcast. And she was speaking at um, at, at fundraising conference uh, co- congress up in Toronto. And I got her on there right after her speech. And she talked about imposter syndrome. And imposter syndrome had never sort of hit my radar. I had never – I never felt like, and, and and still to this day, probably would not say that I have ever felt like an imposter at the lunch table, for example. Is it because, is it a gender thing? Gosh, I mean, I think it's a, it's a gender thing. It's a race thing. It's a culture okay. thing. It's a society yeah. thing. It's a class thing. It's an everything yes. okay. thing. But, you know, good for you for recognizing it. At yeah, least you yeah. can you can recognize that discomfort. And I think that's where amazing work is happening right now. You know, we are pushing funders right now to come forward with more money, with yeah. with more commitment and more vigor than ever before. Yeah. But we also have to show up at the table as fundraisers with that same amount of passion. And I feel like sometimes that's lacking. And I think it's because maybe we're not being ourselves. We're not being true to who we are. But that you bring up a great point. Are we able to be? I'm not sure. You're right. I mean, there's so much pressure on us to hit the numbers, to, you know, meet with with quantity. And and really, you know, I just don't believe that 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 results in good for all the people involved. So, so when my, when I was in Washington, DC, Danielle and I, <clears throat> Danielle is an African American woman and she and I would travel the country. And I think I, I think what her, her and I working together really taught me, I mean, she showed up and she showed up as I like to think, and I, and I'm not questioning it. I think she showed up about as real as you could perhaps show up. And I, I think I have always shown up as real. Um, and it was very meaningful work in the sense because we, we sort of got to watch the way that we sort of showed up. But Jessica, I think part of what my angst about this notion of fundraisers saying to me that they want to show up and they want to show up as real is I don't know if they're showing up enough in the places that matter. Like we tolerate a bunch of marginalized sort of roles inside inside the organization and like my guest that I was talking to yesterday on the podcast far too often we tolerate these roles 
where we're not ultimately, we're sort of like these master technicians. And when I think of a technician, I'm thinking of the tech guy who's basically tinkering under the hood of my minivan out in my yard, you know, in my driveway. If you're, if you're a technician, I don't know that you're supposed to quote unquote show up as your real self. You're supposed to be a technician. You're supposed to fix under the hood. Um, is part of the problem that we have to, because I think the world, here, here's me on my first soapbox here, it is part of the world sort of waking up to the idea that we're all in our grand diversity going to become our full selves. And as a result of this, Jessica, is fundraising going to become something it's not known to be right now? Like 10 years from now, it sounds to me like 10 years from now, if we all start showing up the way that we really are and who we truly are, fundraising might be remarkably different. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. But I would challenge you to say, what's wrong with that? Like, what's wrong with it being completely different? We should evolve. Oh, if we're... I'm not saying anything's wrong with it. I'm excited yeah, about it. I just want to make sure I, get to interv- I just want to make sure I get to interview all the people who show up in the in the best ways. <laughs> I don't you have know, any problem with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think that you bring up such a great point. You know, our, you're talking about imposter syndrome. Like, I think it's just so great that you're even acknowledging that it exists. But you're right. I'm a white woman, and I have been given this opportunity. And I've been given lots of opportunities because of my privilege. I know that. Sure. So, and, and I'll share with you, you know, I've had a difficult life and that's what brought me to this field. I left my home when I was a teenager Uh and lived on my own. I was emancipated. Um, I jumped from couch to couch. I had friends that helped me and I was on my own from the age of 16 on, which is not that young, it's not that rare. Like there's many people who have gone through much worse, but for me, that was, that was my story. And, you know, I live by this saying, I really love Glennon Doyle. And so she says, there's no glory except through your story. And I really believe that, you know, it wasn't until I showed up at the table and I embraced who I was with all of my flaws and the biases that I bring to the table every day really acknowledge that for what they are and then try to work on them. And I think that's all we can do, but we have to use our positions and our voices for good. You know, I think that my fundraising is my superpower. I think that I was given this gift that, you know, I'm just, I happen to be good at it. I didn't go to school for it. You know, I, I, I just was given an opportunity. And I think that, you know, we're talking about race and we're talking about implicit bias. We're talking about these things. It exists. Yeah. So, you know, to me, okay. it's about. <clears throat> so I get the privilege of with my podcast. I get I get to pull pull it out of people. If if, if people aren't forthright about their stories like you just shared with us, um, I get to pull it out of people anyway. That's some, some of the privilege that comes with being a podcaster. And I'm sure it comes with being radio host and other people who do this sort of stuff. But do you get how often do you get to tell that bring that story to the table with your donors? Well, in a previous life, never. Okay. Because okay. because you know, fundraising at a university is different from fundraising for an agency that does um, ju- juvenile justice work, you know? So it, we so don't all have to, that you privilege. You get to bring that story to the table now. Often. I do. I do, but you know, I didn't really want to, and I was really scared about it. And are you a better, are you a better fundraiser because you do? Yes, absolutely. Yes. You know, I I think we're the best fundraisers when we bring all of those things to the table. And then once we do, it's like, you just find the right people around you. You find the right opportunities if you're willing to. And then if you embrace those things that are brought around you, you know, like that's just, that's all I've done. I've just kind of made the best of my situations. And I think that's why I admire people who have had more adversity than me. You know, it's like, yeah, I had it tough, but I'm still a white lady. I still have a great job and I still have a a beautiful home. You know, I have everything that I need and I'm loved. Yeah. But if I don't dedicate every day of my working life to helping to bring up, especially Black, Indigenous, people of color in every way, whether it be through my work directly or through mentoring people or, you know, through my hiring process, like any of that, like just 
building in diversity in every way, I feel like, you know, now is the moment and we really have to embrace it. Okay. I don't know if anybody's ever written this, but it's definitely a theory that's sort of simmering in my head. Maybe you've got the theory. Maybe we can theory, we can theoretically share it. Um, I think adversity makes you a better fundraiser. And so in some ways, because I got to say, it's probably my, so when I was working with Danielle at the Epilepsy Foundation, it wasn't my privilege. It wasn't because I was a white straight male that necessarily allowed me to connect with my donors. It was because I grew up with a kid with a seizure condition, right? That was a, that was what allowed me to connect with my donors. It's what allowed me to be passionate about the research that we were doing. And consequently, I was better at raising money in many cases. I would say that I, it was the adversity that sort of related me to my donors in many cases. And I have oftentimes thought that, that, for example, women of color in this work, I think absolutely are remarkably talented at doing this work. And it's actually, and I think I've talked to women of color who basically understood and acknowledged sort of what I'm saying here, that, that it's, um, um, that it's their adversity. It's the adversity that they've experienced. And you're a woman, so let's not make it about women of color, but let's make it about you being a woman, for example. Sure. The, you being a, you've experienced adversity because you're a woman, perhaps, throughout your life. So in some ways, does that adversity actually make you better at doing this? I I think so. I mean, I... You're right. Like, we should write the book, Jason. Get on it. <laughs> I mean, you can just write it. I've got okay. a book I'm <laughs> I know. I can't I, wait. I, I really think that that adversity, I think there's something in that adversity that makes, in, in some ways, I think it may be the humility that oftentimes comes as a necessity with adversity. Like, you can sit yourself down at that table, but it's also what concerns me about us never getting to that table. I think there's a lot of fundraisers who've experienced adversity by whatever definition it happens to be. And they're not getting to the table often enough. And then the very privileged person who's sitting across the table with them, who has all this affluence and da 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 da, that sort of comes with that. I think sometimes these donors sit at the table wanting to sort of see and touch and experience that adversity. And sometimes we as fundraisers are that vehicle to sort of let them touch it. You know, and I don't mean touching in any appropriate <laughs> sense. I just mean that we're helping them sort of connect their lives of privilege and whatever else comes with that to something that they've never sort of touched in any meaningful way. But I don't Absolutely. think we're at the but I don't think we're at the lunch table enough. No, I don't think so either. And that's why I think we have to do it as individuals first. And if we're in positions of power or privilege, we have to lead by example. So I have to come to the table with my adversity, with my flaws, with all of it. And I have to be honest about it, you know, but it's very tough to do. And you touch on a great thing. You know, what we're looking for here is a common thread, right? The majority of the work we're doing is relationships. And so when you're sitting down having a conversation, you're right. Like adversity brings that little something that makes you real, It makes you like, it gives you that connection with the other person because they can see like, ah, you're a real person too. But, you know, how do you find the balance between like, how much adversity can you really bring without being judged? And that's a tough place to be when you're expected to come home with the check. So. Okay. I, I, okay. So I keep picking up on this message from some of my guests. Now understand, I get the benefit of having a conversation with a fundraiser several times a week, and I oftentimes have this 45-minute conversation, but I also tend to have forty-five, sometimes 45-minute conversations after we stop recording, right? And I tend to think that, and I what I tend to hear lately, Jessica, is that a lot of that adversity isn't coming from the donor, but it's coming from the boss, the, the the idea that we can't show up, the the idea that that if you show up in a particular way, I think I think the photograph, Jessica, you had red hair at some point. Am I right? Did you yeah, have red hair? Okay, I do, see, I, I do. But you, but you had redder hair in the photograph that I saw on the on the internet. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, okay. super bright red. Yes. Okay. So so if you showed up, what I tend to what I tend to hear, and I've talked to somebody about writing about this for our our, our fall journal. What I tend to hear is, is that the adversity that they encounter about showing up 
is more about the fears and anxieties and reservations that the boss has or perhaps the board has about you showing up at the lunch table than even whether or not the donor gives a damn how you show up. Like, I don't think these donors live in a world where they get to sort of curate who shows up at the lunch table with them. They have, they have, don't, they have meetings of the sort that we're talking about all the time. And, 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 and across the, you know, the, the, the bigger the enterprise that they happen to be associated with, the more likely it's an international audience. It's a, I mean, it's, it's perhaps as diverse as you could possibly be. Why the hell can't fundraisers work for bosses that let you show up? That's kind of the question I want to ask. Yeah, I mean, I want to ask it too, but I'm a boss, so, so you're I mean, a boss, right? Yeah, uh, yes. yeah. You know, I am yes. a staff now, and so it's my responsibility in this role, especially since I'm building a whole department from scratch, because my agency happened to have been funded by the government since 1975. Yeah. So it's a very unique situation. But I think, really, if we go back to the beginning of our conversation, I think that that COVID has given us an opportunity to rethink how we operate in business overall. Yeah. And so I really think that if if bosses or people in positions of power like that can make that can give feedback that can say, hey, it's okay for you to be yourself, we have to do more of that. And then we have to recruit people who aren't perfect. We have to yes. recruit people who maybe, you know, don't have CFREs or, yes. you know, not that there's something wrong with that. That's great. Sure. But I didn't have $900 to pay for that. So yeah. I, I, you know, and, and I think that we have to, we have to start rethinking, you know, what makes a good fundraising professional? Because at the core of this work, it's about conversations and it's about finding a common thread between the agency and the donor. And however you get there, you know, it's gotta be donor centric, right? But sure. I really believe that you, ha that you can do it in this way. It's just, you know, striking a great balance. Yeah, I'm not. Um, so we have a podcast conversation that's broadcasting here this week. Um, that's broadcasting this week. It was a guy who asked, you mentioned donor centricity. And he did a survey. Um, and any of my listeners who saw this a couple of weeks ago, we posted it here on the podcast. He did a survey um, because he had he had posted a question on on social media asking the question of whether or not sort of donor centricity was sort of out of vogue anymore, and it was if it was sort of losing its if it was sort of there was a disconnect. The, the question was, is it sort of on its way out? And the interesting thing about the observation that he made, and folks, if you're interested, you can go back and listen to this this conversation that I had with uh, Scott Myers is his name. Scott basically was able to scan the three <clears throat> excuse me the 349 responses that he got. And the and what he basically was able to very quickly assess is that the guardians of the note, whatever whatever the hell we describe as donor centricity, the guardians of donor centricity were basically old white guys, were old white guys. And so I, I wonder if I wonder if part going back to sort of just just five ten minutes ago, I wonder if some of our notions of even what the work looks like and our buzzwords that we throw around like donor centricity and stuff. That's some of the stuff that really excites me 10 years out, because I think somebody like yourself, Jessica, who isn't, isn't, isn't an old white guy working for a large institution is going to come <laughs> up with the new ideas. And if we can get your ideas out there faster than I can, I mean, I mean, has it ever, has it ever occurred to you, Jessica, that you see soapbox number two, has, has it ever occurred to you that basically the experts out there come up with buzzwords so that they can get contracts and keynotes? That's basically what these buzzwords are for. If you yeah. trace that, if you trace donor centricity all the way back, it's for somebody who wanted to basically come up with a marketing concept. But Jessica, I don't think you're describing to me marketing work. You just want to sit at the lunch table and have a meaningful relationship with somebody who can basically move the dime on whatever your organization's trying to do. I don't think you really give a damn what we call it. No, I don't. And yeah. honestly, <laughs> I mean, you're right. Yes. It is. And, and I mean, maybe because I'm not the sort of fundraiser that that does keynotes. I, maybe I should. I don't know. No, you're not. You know, you don't need to. You need to be raising a hell of a lot of money yeah. for something that lines with that it lines up with that adversity you experienced as a you. Absolutely, youth. absolutely. You know, there is a different line of thinking. But you're right. You know, it's not about. Uh, you know, I use donor centric because I, I in my brain I think that's recognizable. 
But, you know, we're not changing anything by using that stuff. So you're right. It's about the relationships. It's about that lunch table. And then it's about, you know, bringing new people. You know, I I really think that there's a lot of crossover happening between public and private sector, between foundations and individuals. And, and now, you know, I, I'm going to, yes, it has it always been old white men? Yep. And I mean, when I started, when I was 19 years old, that had an effect on me. You know, it really did. I mean, I was fundraising for, you know, an arts organization in New York City. And that is really who it was. Tell tell me what that means when you said it had an effect on you. Help me understand what that means. What does that mean? I mean, being a woman in fundraising. Being a 19-year-old woman in fundraising. yeah, a very you young woman. You were like you were like my daughter. I mean, I was a baby. Yeah, I don't know that I'd want you raising money by yourself <laughs> in New York City at nineteen. But anyway, yeah. But you know, I mean, that was patriarchy coming out. Sorry about that. Right? No, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate. I mean, you know, it was really. I mean, I had to do what I had to do to survive. You know, yes. like I I didn't have a home, so I was on my own at sixteen. So by nineteen, I thought I was like thirty five with the wisdom of a sixty year old or something. Right. Right. But, you know, in the time I didn't know, I was very naive and I didn't understand the playing field really. And so I think that kind of protected me a little bit, but I mean, uh-huh. I was going to, to big parties at the Waldorf Astoria and, yeah. and you're right. You know, it affected me because it gave me the notion that these white men controlled my future yeah. and that, that they controlled the future of nonprofits and they controlled the work that would be done. That made me so mad. You know, yeah. just like, I think that's what still fuels me today. You know, that little bit of angry down in my stomach. That's Angst, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think pain is always necessary for growth. But for me, unfortunately, I've had to lean into pain to grow. And when I was younger, you know, I definitely felt like I had to play up the pretty young girl. Yes. But I don't do that anymore. So how long did it take you? Did something, did it, forgive me for asking, but, but I'm a podcaster. So I got to pull this out of people. Did something something tragic happen or did you, did you just sort of over time realize that this was icky and it wasn't right? And did it, the the, the reason, and some of the reason I asked that is because it seems to me a lot of the people that, for example, a lot of people that picked up my first book and trust me, my first book was not anywhere trying to address this particular issue, but it seems to me like we've got a lot of fundraisers out there who are about 10 to 12 years into their fundraising career where their eyes sort of open up. So regardless of who they happen to be, they sort of start to think more critically about this. And so if we just assume that people sort of land in these fundraising roles, perhaps in their, at the earliest in their early twenties, it's, it's sort of the, it's sort of the, the, the 32 to 35 year old that I'm oftentimes sort of intrigued most intrigued listening to because oftentimes they're at that very early place where they're starting to think very critically about what they're doing. Is that the place or was it earlier than that for you? No, I think you're right on. It was right around 30 to 35 when I figured it out. And I think you're touching on, you know, there's so much pressure on young fundraisers because you feel like you have to prove yourself. You have to hit these numbers, you know, and and that's what I'm trying to challenge here. Like it should really be more about quality relationships and strategic fundraising. Like, you know, it's much better to build a relationship over 18 months with a billionaire than it is to get a flash in the pan million dollars tomorrow. So, um, but did it take you, you, did you have to be 32 to figure that out? Did you, wait a minute. Did you, did your boss not know that? That took me about 24 months to figure out. I don't think it took me 12 years. And that and that's part of what it, that's part of what excites me about that that young generation that we're talking about is I think there's a generation of young people that are going to transition into senior roles that like they're going to start running our nonprofit shops and they're going to start figuring they're going to start running the shops in accordance with that because I think there's too many bosses out there and 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 forgive me bosses and you know who you are but the bosses out there that are retiring now have tried to 
in many cases, operate shops like that where you basically are trying to literally close million dollar gifts tomorrow, and that doesn't work. And it's it's a it's a it's just as exploitive, in my opinion, of the rich, wealthy white guy as it is the the young woman who's soliciting the gift. It's exploitation Absolutely. on both sides. So yeah, we're not doing donors any favors by you know just doing those quick deals. No, no, it's it's it, yeah yeah. It, it, so did you did it take did it really take you 12 years to figure that out or did it take you 12 years to have the audacity to say it that you can't run relationships like that I think I think it probably took me you're right more like a couple of a handful of years to realize yeah. that was necessary but yeah. probably until I was in my 30s to realize that I could say something about it and that it wouldn't risk my career you know Yeah and that's were you where, chasing you know, after at, at 26? Were you still were you chasing after that CFRE in your mind? No, because I feel like I had already proven myself, you know, so like I had I had been able to achieve so many dollar figure milestones. OK. And and so that to me was kind of like speaking for itself. But having that certification matters more to some people than others. And just uh-huh. in my field, it just didn't. Uh, yeah. At least with the people that I was working with. Because yeah, I, I don't think that at 26, because I think there's like a lot of 26 to 30 year olds who are chasing that because they've been in, they've now been in five years. But I don't know that the CFRE, for example, is structured in such a way where it teaches them that some of the intuitive and some of the qualitative stuff that fundraising is supposed to teach us. I don't think it I don't think it's structured. That would be my critique. I've been I've been certified twice. I've gone through the rigmarole and I've always been fortunate enough to have the yeah, the shit, $900. Um, I, I've always had the money to figure that out, but I don't think it qualitatively and intuitively sort of trains up the intuition you've probably got now. And I think um, I, I think there's an apprenticeship type. So, okay, so sort of continuing on the path that we're going. So if, if I'm thinking about Jessica as a supervisor now, Am I right to say that you could probably apprentice some remarkably talented fundraisers? I think that's what probably excites me the most. Me too. <laughs> okay. I, I love that. You know, honestly, it, it's hard though, because, you know, I have so much responsibility for the bottom line at my agency, but I think you have to make time for it and you have to build it in. And so what I am trying to do as I build a team is, to think about more than um, just what the traditional fundraising training would be and look yeah. at people for what they are and bringing those, you know, biases and flaws and all of the good stuff that makes them real people and just recognizing that. And, and honestly, what it comes down to is like a couple of key traits, you know, like, are you a good communicator? Yeah. Are you, you know, can you write well? Like there's, you know, and so that sort of thing I feel like you can hone in on and you can really recognize and say, hey, like, I can lead the strategy here. Like, I have loads of strategy. You know, I didn't do this for 20 years to not be full of ideas. But when I think we struggle as fundraisers is like putting the, the you know, hitting the pavement and actually enacting plans. And and so I can plan all I want and, and advise people on what to do if I have the people to do the actions. And so... You know, to me, it's more about like letting go of a little bit of the control about how I think fundraising needs to be. And also, you know, keeping all of the stuff in mind that we've talked about, the biases that are involved and getting people at the lunch table and who's invited and all that, you know, really, really being mindful about who I hire, you know, and, and who I bring onto my team, because that's what I have power over and control over now. So I have two young ladies on my team right now who are, um, one lives in Tennessee, one lives in New Jersey. They're both young women uh, in their 20s, 30s, and they are both women of color, and they are both learning to be fundraisers, and I love it. Um, uh, If you don't mind me sort of pressing on that, how close are they going to be to the donor? How how quickly are you going to get them in front of the donors? I I just hired a young woman uh, about a month ago that is coming in and kind of like a mid-level gift officer okay. position, yeah. but she, she does not have direct experience in it. She's been kind of peripheral. She's got a yeah. lot of programmatic experience. Yeah. Sure. Um, and she's, she's a great communicator. So um, I think probably she'll be ready to, to do visits on her own 
yeah. within the next six months. Okay. Um, yeah. And that's yeah, just that's because what, she's shadowing telling, me. And that's what I'm telling donor. That's what I'm telling fundraisers. I'm like, get in front of the donor as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, the, the, the thing, the thing that I think I, so if, if, if we put the word adversity as an advantage on the fundraiser, I think the thing that we have to understand, and I'm sure you've seen this, some of these donors that I've interacted with over the years, they may be the richest, wealthiest, affluent, you know, how many words can you sort of attach to, to having money to their, to how many adjectives can you use? But they're also lonely. And I think some of the reasons that we don't sort of pick up on the reason that they're showing up at the lunch table and they will unravel that just like your willingness, your willingness to sort of unravel your story as a youth, for example, they'll unravel their money story with you within the first half hour. And I don't, and and I don't think we sort of understand. um, I I don't think that they're necessary. I I said this recently with another guy. I don't think they're the monster in the room. Um, I I tend to pick on the experts in our field. I think we've got to have sort of some new experts that sort of redefine what the problems are. And, And I just, I don't think that that, Rich white woman, rich white fella is necessarily the monster at the table. I think in some cases he's lonely as hell. And um, and if you know how to do your job well, I mean, the, the young woman you're describing there, she just has to be coached up to be rock solid, strong as hell at that lunch table, not feel like she has to be impressionable and right. I mean, what are the things she's yeah. got to learn before you put her in front of that donor? Well, first of all, you know, this adversity, you know, theme that we're talking about. And, and you bring up this great point about like, who is the monster in the room? You know, I agree with you. You know, I don't really think there's a monster in the room, but I mean, I think, I think that you're right. That it's not, it's not the, the only the donor's job to do right here, you know, and we can't leave it up to the people. You know, we, we have a lot of power as fundraisers because money makes the world go round. Money makes programs happen. It pays salaries, you know, and so that really controls a lot in the future of a nonprofit, especially when you're driving a main source of revenue. But with that, you know, comes responsibility. And then, you know, you, you're sharing that with this donor and you're right. Many of these donors will share their life story they with will, you. They <laughs> like totally unravel it. And then yes. I, I think that's okay. So when, when I'm talking to someone who, who tends to have a lot of animosity to the donor, I tend to want to push them a little further and find out how many times they've actually been at the lunch table with these people. I mean, I totally know that there's jerks out there that totally take advantage of these people. But I think 95% of these donors that we're talking about actually are some of the loneliest people in the world. Their affluent sort of just screams out in front of them. And so it's really the only thing we see. And then in some cases, they just want to be treated like human beings and they don't and what we have to do is know how to come to the table and sort of, you know, as peers, not let their not let their affluence, their age, their affluence, their power, whatever, sort of linger on, you know, linger above the conversation. Yeah. And I mean, let that adversity connect you. You know, everyone has has had trials and tribulations. Everyone has had difficulties in life. And I think that's why when you're a real person at the lunch table, it's easier to fundraise. I mean, I'm good at what I do. I know that. Yeah. So, you know, is it because I, you know, studied research on fundraising every day? No, it's because I went out and did the work. Yes, yes. It's also because I am challenging this idea that fundraisers are robots and that we need to go out and do the same motions and dances in front of the the same twenty five wealthy white men like we're talking about. For the and sake of my listeners, the- Jessica literally, literally just pretended like she was a robot. <laughs> it was a good your, move, your right? Your body just did that. That's that's extraordinary. Thank you. Thank you. But you know, <laughs> we want to be real people, you know. So. I think that when you come to the table as a real person and and maybe that, you know, for me, my adversity works because I work for an agency that happens to be a second chance agency. You know, we yeah. live and breathe in giving people another opportunity at life. And so, you know, great hey, for me. That, 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 that's, I had never thought about it that way. See, these, I had never thought about it that way, Jessica. But in some cases, 
when we show up real, when you show up real as hell, whoever the hell you happen to be, and you've got a rich, wealthy, you know, person across the lunch table, if you would, because one of the things that we do in our coaching is, is we tell, we tell our coaches, I mean, we tell our clients, we say, get money on the table, acknowledge that money is a part of the relationship. But I think in some ways, when we do that, it allows the donor to show up real too. Because if you sort of skirt around the issue that you're literally sitting across the table with a super rich person and you don't acknowledge their wealth, it doesn't mean you have to give it precedence over anything else. It's just acknowledging just like everything else that characterizes who we are. Absolutely. Because then they feel there's a freedom that comes with the fact, like I, I'm thinking of a woman that I was, I was working with a client in Los Angeles for a number of years, and my client and I would routinely meet with this woman who was probably the third wealthiest individual in the, in the Santa Clarita Valley in, um, in Los Angeles. And I think about the fact that how many times she felt like she had to show up not real because people wouldn't acknowledge who she was. Like, I think in some ways she wanted to know, not so that you had to kiss her ass, but so that you that that people, you know, just acknowledge the fact and let me acknowledge the fact that I've probably got way too much wealth that I need to have. And 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 then let's build another, you know, let's build a meaningful relationship on the other side of that. But until you acknowledge that it's sitting there, how the hell can you do that? I know I think it's so funny when like you know, oh, I'm not here for money. And it's like, well, yeah, I am, you know, like <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line of everything I do. And so, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm the, I'm the chief of philanthropy. So if that doesn't say fundraising to you and we even use like a fancy word too, right. To make it seem like it's you know, something oh, it's, else. Yeah. It's something else. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, what it comes down to is, is like, that is what it is. It's about the dollars on the table. And as fundraisers in these roles, we have the power to set the stage of the room. You know, it, it's interesting, actually. I saw a masterclass about hostage negotiations. Yeah. <laughs> Not that donors are hostages, but I think that the art of negotiation is very interesting. Okay. And I think that it plays a big role in in conversation, like especially when you get down to the ask, like negotiating, you know, and 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 really when you call in like a hostage negotiator, right? They're there to get that person to to do whatever they say. And that's really kind of as fundraisers, what we're doing too. Like we're coming to the table because we have this ulterior motive. But what it comes down to with the negotiator is like finding that commonality. Like how do you connect on a real level with that person to get them off the ledge? And I think it's very similar in, in this way. We have earned this. If you're a fundraiser out in the field working, sitting across the table from those wealthy people, you've yeah. earned it. You yes. have earned it. And so Bring that value in yourself to the table and know that you have that and that, you know, we are equals, you know, we're, we're all like, we're talking about the adversity. We all have something. So I think it really is, we have more power than we give ourselves credit for. If you come into the room, you have the power to set the stage and you're right. Be real, like mention, point to the elephant in the room. Um, And then you can have a real conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So Jessica, do you put, do you put this stuff on paper? You've obviously thought this stuff through and uh, you know, for a guy like me, so I've hired a book, a writing coach who helps me get this stuff on paper. I'm just curious, have you written this stuff down? I have notebooks full of writing, but I've never really officially done anything with it. But who knows? Maybe I will. Who knows? Yeah, start writing something down and I'll help. uh, Your friends at Responsive Fundraising will help you get the uh, help you get it out there. Um, I I think one of the things that frustrates me and one of the things we're trying to do at Responsive is elevate and celebrate sort of the, the voices that are on the fringe. And I think individuals like yourself who you know, you're not in New York City, you're up in upstate New York, and you're raising money, you're not necessarily on, you know, you're not at some consulting shop, for example, that gets all the keynotes and the contracts, as I reference. And I think those are the types of people that when we talk about, so when I hear an organization tell me we've got to, in fundraising, we've got to champion some of these diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, I'm thinking, okay, that's fine. But 
the 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 institutions that are going to do that are the ones that are actually touching the touching the work that are actually doing the work the ones that are going to be able to deliver on that and i don't know that that's what we're sort of seeing and hearing and so listening to you describe your own experiences and to hear you describing who you're hiring for example and and then to even piece together how you're going to train them up and me understanding sort of, you know, just sort of piecing together everything you've shared with us in the last 45 minutes um, really gives me a sense of how much more holistically and organically we can sort of accomplish these things. Does that make sense? It's totally organic and it's not going to happen in the halls of some consulting shop. It's going to happen or, or at an association or, or some corporate board, it's going to literally happen on the ground in Rochester, New York. Um, what do you want? Before I let you go, what do you want for those two? You, you described two young women that you just hired, two women of color. What do you want for them 10 years from now? I'm going to put you What do you want from them? Because they may not be. If What I may want for them is them not to actually be working for you. Because most young people these days are not going to be working for you 10 years out. So where do you want them to be? Thank you so much for asking that because I think it's important we think about the people that work with us. So to me, I hope that I can give them the confidence that I've been able to earn over the years. And I hope that they can show up at that table with all sorts of different people. Yeah. But they can be their real selves and they can be comfortable and really, truly comfortable in who they are at that table. I think then we'll really be talking about equity and inclusion. And, and I really have a lot of hope in the younger fundraisers. You know, I would love to be out of the job and, you know, be uh, moving out of the way for some great up and comer. So yeah. I embrace it. Yeah. Yeah. Jessica. I don't. I think you and I connected on LinkedIn. I've. I delight in these conversations. Some of them I delight in more than I, others, and this is certainly at the top of my list. I've really enjoyed this conversation this week. Um, if somebody else is listening to this conversation, and trust me, people do. People get back to me and they say, "Hey, you know who I like." Like Jessica, people have picked up on consulting gigs out of this, so don't uh, don't be shy on this. Tell people how they can find you if they're interested in reaching out to you. Absolutely. So uh, my name is Jessica Stat. I am on LinkedIn, but you can also email me at uh, giving at yapinc.org. It's giving at yapinc.org. And I would love to embrace some new people in my life that believe that adversity makes us better fundraisers and that we can make this world a better place with our talents. Thank you, Jessica. It's been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Thank you so much. The pleasure has really been mine. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.